and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we capture stories which our guests think are important but somewhat underreported. And then at the end of the podcast, we go through our heroes and villains of the week. I'm delighted to be joined by Gavin Haynes, editor-at-large for Vice, and Carl Miller, research director at Demos and author of The Death of the Gods, the new global power grab. Hello, Gavin and Carl. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, um, we're going to start with your underreported story, Carl. This is a fascinating and kind of equally terrifying story about criminal power. Indeed, and and I think hugely underreported and not widely understood at all is one, just how much crime has really transferred onto digital arenas. Um, so I spent time with the cybercrime teams uh, in the British police and eventually went on a cybercrime raid with them to catch a kind of serial iCloud hacker, someone that had been waltzing through people's private digital lives, um, searching for what he called wins, um, private sexual images uh, that had been, that had been stored, on a, stored on people's phones and backups. Um, and and kind of I realised with kind of growing horror that there was kind of only one surprising thing about this raid. Not surprising that uh, it, it happened. Uh, not surprising that this this man was a cyber criminal. There are there are thousands of them. Around roughly forty percent of all crimes that happen on the internet. Um, he was the kind of least um, hardened criminal I think I'd ever come across. And and I, I then quickly realised that the barriers to entry into cyber crime were unbelievably low. An idiot can do cyber crime. Um, uh, but he was also doing sophisticated things, and that wasn't surprising either, because if you go to DEFCON every year to Las Vegas, tens of thousands of hackers all throng there um, to to display to all of their peers the kind of the most ingenious hacks of the year. And I saw laptops being hacked with light. I saw people prove they could cause wind turbines to burst into flames. Um, hackers truly have, on both sides of the law, risen to be a new power elite. Um, the only thing that was surprising about that raid, and I think... The fact that really is hugely underreported um, is that um, it happened at all, that this person had been caught. He was, in many ways, unbelievably unlucky. And and, and as I spent more time with the police, I realised that we are, I think, living through um, the most serious crisis of law enforcement in the in the history of modern policing. Time and time and time again, I saw the same thing happen. Um, the evidence was in one country, the victims were in another, the perpetrators were in a third. Um, crime on the internet, like anything on the internet, travels unbelievably easily across borders, and the police just simply couldn't reach across those borders to actually bring all three together and into a British courtroom. I mean, the you, the piece is extraordinary, and I mean, one of the the stats that jumped out to me was that you're twenty times more likely to be robbed at your computer than mugged in the street. And right now, you know, we're in this grip of understandable anxiety about rising street crime, particularly in London and some of the other big cities um, and shire towns. But what should we be doing to protect ourselves? Is there anything we can do? Or are, are these hackers just so sophisticated that, you know, it's we've kind of lost? Well, the first thing to recognise, and really this is why I wrote The Death of the Gods, is to recognise that how power is really transitioning around us. And, and when it comes to cybercrime, and I, and I really think quite a serious transfer of power away from law enforcement and 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 towards cyber criminals um the problem with it is that it's it's a largely invisible largely unseen 
um, phenomenon to have happened. As you say, that you, you don't see often cybercrime in the streets. Sometimes mm. um, you see um, NHS departments closing down or or a German train company suddenly suddenly being subject to ransomware attacks. So there are a few times when this has exploded in, in, into the public eye, but but commonly it happens in people's homes and, 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 and away from uh, the eyes of others. Um, so the first thing that we can do is actually is actually realise what a serious, significant kind of tectonic shift in power that, that, that we've actually lived through. Um, and, 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 and then secondly, yes, we can begin to actually do things to respond to it. Um, the police needs to be seriously reformed. They are, they are facing one of the, as I said, greatest challenges, which requires one of the greatest programmes of reform, I think, that they, they, they have seen in, in their history so far. Um, and they're trying to do so at a time um, when their budgets are being cut back year on year, I think under quite a false um, kind of assumption that crime has been falling. We're only beginning now, I think, after years of austerity and after years of, of declining police budgets to actually realise that crime hasn't been falling at all. It's simply been changing the venue where it happens. Yeah, that was another thing that very came very strongly. One of the uh, police um, people basically said, look, crime isn't falling. It's been transformed into new forms um, that we're only beginning to count and that... Um, you know, forces are still trying to find savings after what now like eight years of austerity. And actually, from what you're saying and from what the, the police chiefs are saying, the whole kind of infrastructure that underpins how the police, you know, need to change and, and, and really, you know, get on top of this is completely missing. And I just wondered from that point of view, you talk about power and it's, it's so interesting about how power is shifting, but how does the state have the power to protect its citizens from these new forces of power that shapeshift, that are, of course, kind of anonymous. How, where, where does the state's power lie? It's an, it, that's a great question and, and probably a generational challenge for us all. I mean, if I might make a kind of broader point, whether it's in crime or politics or media or warfare, almost everywhere I looked over, over a year that I spent trying to track the reality of power down, I saw the same thing happening which was that we were both living through, I think, and are now kind of an onrush of both more liberation and more control than ever before. And the, and the simple reason for that is power has broken out of all the cages that we've built to try and contain it. The law, regulation, norms, public scrutiny, all these things that we've actually tried to wrap power around to try and control it, to try and um, make it a rules-bound thing that can reach into each of our lives, um, is actually broken out of all those different mm. things. And the, kind of, and, and the kind of way forward, the kind of generational challenge for us all is to work out how we can build new cages for it in all of its new forms. And that inevitably is going to mean to build cages that can shift and change and reform and rebuild as quickly as the technology that power now flows through. It's so difficult. I mean, the word cages is, is very interesting. It's a, it's a very arresting image and it's it's quite difficult. I mean, in terms of the sense of power, the sense of powerlessness, the, the, the sort of the sense of the, the lack of power, that one of the victims um, that was described in the piece, I think it was a woman, and her private account had been hacked. And the most, you know, I don't know if you want to just tell us that story. I mean, I couldn't believe how horrible that story was. And this woman, there was nothing that anybody could really do to help this woman. Right, and that, and, and that's what um, power can often feel like. It can feel, when it's being done to you, it can feel like helplessness. Um, so the woman, uh, Susan, not her real name, um, kind of woke up one morning to find herself locked out of all of her social media accounts. Um, but they were all active and they were all sharing... Um, private sexual images um, that had been stolen from her phone, um, showing them to her colleagues, showing them to her friends. Um, she tried to log into her accounts. She couldn't um, and and spent uh, 
uh, the day trying to get the social media platforms to lock the accounts. Um, even worse, uh, it happened again uh, around a year later where again her accounts were locked and again they started sending images and this time even more broadly onto a series of, uh, of websites, shaming websites too. Um, this is the kind of thing that can now happen to all of us, frankly. Um, the idea that any of us are safe from these new, raw, coercive, sometimes very brutal and abusive forms of power, I think, is a fiction. Um, and, and we, uh, you know, as ever, desperately need to find ways of actually making sure that morals matter now, and that the law can be enforced, um, that the kind of vulnerable online can be protected. Um, and those things, as in Susan's case, just very, very often simply don't happen. Gavin, um, your thoughts on this story, do, do you think we can sort of regulate this type of thing? Do you think the law can apply when malice and, and actually quite a lot of expertise um, are at play? It doesn't appear so is, is the short answer. And um, I'm struck by the, the, the symmetry between um, what you've described and I guess the other side of that, which is the big social media monopolies that we've built and, you know, companies like Facebook and Amazon. Amazon, of course, goes off and hides in Luxembourg or Delaware, doesn't like paying tax. Um, and these companies have a very sort of hands-off um, attitude to a lot of things like that that might happen to someone. My Facebook account um, was mysteriously deleted overnight in 2012. And it's only at that point that you realise that, oh, yes, Facebook isn't the Ministry of Social Media. It's a private company. They can do what the hell they like with your data. Uh, and if it goes missing, you know they, they don't. They don't care. They don't really give. And a did you get... get to the bottom as to why your account <laughs> suddenly went missing? Well, I mean, that's a sort of a slightly strange um, a byway. But basically, um, uh, I wrote a piece which was negatively disposed towards Skrillex, the dubstep artist, my lord, um, and. I think various sort of Skrillex fans got together on some kind of forum and flagged my account from multiple locations as belonging to someone under the age of 13. By Facebook's terms of service, they're not allowed to serve anyone who is below that point. So um, it, this is all a bit of a theory, but, um, you know, that the account I mean, is automatically you young, deleted <laughs> and, and nothing can be ever recovered from wow. it. Wow. So... Yeah, that's... But it does, I mean, it pivots into that, the bigger issue about um, tech and sort of where where power lies. I mean, I was always, I mean, when I worked in, in government as a special advisor, but then in opposition as a political advisor as well, the one thing that was so clear is that, you know, whenever the tech giants came in to, to lobby anybody in government or parliament, they could just run rings around the policymakers and the advisors and the MPs because their knowledge was just far superior. I mean, a lot of MPs still struggle to send an email unaided. And we saw that when Zuckerberg went to give evidence. I mean, it was embarrassing, the sort of lack of knowledge. So um, I suppose, Carl, I mean, how, how can lawmakers rein in this power when they themselves don't really understand technology? Well, uh, Demos has a wonderful uh, technology education product, uh, project currently running where we're, we're trying to do exactly that, really, in our own small way. And and I think kind of bringing lawmakers and politicians and special advisors and so on along on the journey is going to be very important for the tech companies themselves. But, um, I mean, it's great that you're doing it, but you are but one operation. I mean, let's look at our the new Secretary of State for DCMS, which now has digital, Jeremy Wright. He didn't even have a social media account before he was appointed a couple of months ago. That doesn't bode well for when he goes and has a meeting with Google, does it? 
No, uh, so I, I think, yeah, it, it, it's it's easy to bash two groups of people in this debate. It's easy to bash the politicians and it's easy to bash the tech giants. Um, if we are actually going to get through this, then um, we're going. there has to be a way of actually moving beyond, um, I think, like simply this kind of quite controversy-driven, very tactical form of policymaking and, and, and policy writing that's being done at the moment where we kind of lurch from controversy to controversy, worrying equally that the tech giants are, are uh, kind of evil uh, monopolies and worrying that um, politicians are a kind of befuddled, mm. uh, befuddled um, uh, kind of non-entities. Um, and but- Carl, just before we leave this, just one question really. What, what did the, the hacker see... Why did he do it? What were his reasons for doing this? These horrific things, particularly on on women, deeply misogynistic. Very, you know, the amount of mental health trauma that you would cause. But why did he do it? Um, hard to tell. Um, I, I I I believe that he um, said it wasn't really about uh, sex, even though all the images that he he stole and shared were. Um, but but really about control and power. Um, and and in many ways, I think he, like many thousands of others, had found in cybercrime and at their fingertips a kind of dark new route to power, a kind of thrill and a sense of control that he was able to reach into other people's lives um, completely unbeknownst to them and shape and, and, and shift them. And I think, you know, we human beings have, I think in each of us, always kind of held these kind of like dual capacities, really. Like we, all of us have this kind of tremendous ability to kind of save and, and, and help each other. But we also do, and I'm really a Hobbesian here, we do have a kind of desire to plonk each other over the head as well. We do have an urge to power. We do have an urge for, to control often. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's just, I think... It's now at, at people's fingertips, a very, very easy way they're finding to do it. Um, and he'd found it in the extreme. Well, uh, just an amazingly fascinating story. Very, very uh, terrifying as well. Um, thank you, Carl. And uh, for listeners, Carl's book is called The Death of the Gods, The New Global Paragraph. Um, Gavin, we are now going to come to your story, which takes us to South Africa. It does. And uh, it takes us from South Africa to the White House. I woke up last week and, and President Trump was uh, tweeting about this particular issue, which is the supposed uh, genocide of white farmers. Um, the idea came to me about a year, uh, six months ago when I was in Johannesburg and uh, started sort of um, browsing through YouTube and came across uh, Lauren Southern talking to someone else about this issue and sort of being on the ground um this had no this was not a real issue in south africa this was not a thing and it's that sort of strange kind of um otherworldly sense that people are talking about the country you're in your my country effectively um in a way that makes no sense and what was uh, just explain who who is lauren southern and what was what was what was she saying what was her big message uh, Lauren Southern is a sort of hard right, um, some would call her alt right commentator, and her message um, was that farmers in South Africa are being killed um, at an extraordinary rate. That there is something underlying here that is a bit of a conspiracy theory um, that they are being killed for political purposes, um, and then that gets kind of wrapped around the rhetoric of sort of um, extreme South African politicians like Julius Malema, uh, and ultimately like. What I discovered in the course of the story is that this um, has all come from 
um, one organisation, which is an extreme organisation um, called Sadelanders, um, and they in turn are millenarians. They are followers of a Boer prophet called Sina von Rensburg, uh, who is a prophesied race war a um, hundred years ago. Um, and somehow this has grown into a meme and passed through several membranes on its transition uh, from them. Um, they went on a sort of six-month tour of the US where they met with various sort of, um, you know, far-right but also sort of libertarian and, and general conservative mm. uh, organisations. Um, they met with David Duke, but apparently they didn't like him and didn't fancy <laughs> working with him further. Wasn't racist um, enough. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, they said he was... They said he... He was a racist. Oh, we don't we don't like that. Um, but um, so you, you, what you're essentially saying is that a small organisation has um, created a distorted view about white farmers being killed at a disproportionately higher rate than is is true, and that this has now been manipulated into a meme and a it's now become reality to to fuel a kind of a race. War and it's now travelling all over the world. Yes, um, I remember tuning into the Tommy Robinson live stream uh, when he was doing his thing at Speaker's Corner, and there was just you know some random um, sort of football casual there saying, "Oh, it's terrible what's happening in South Africa," um, and this is kind of what's happening. It's all just moved through um, the various parts of the right wing into the, to the point where it, it turns up on Fox News. And, of course, who watches Fox News 24-7? It's uh, da, President da, 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 Donald da, da, Trump. Da. Uh, and, uh, you know, he wakes up with this thought in his head and the next thing he's instructing his uh, Secretary of State to deal with this matter with, with the most urgency. And so, I mean, this is uh, an, an excellent and depressing example of where... Um, you know, facts are distorted, but then, you know, a sort of lie becomes reality because it just spreads so quickly through social media in very hyper-partisan echo chambers anyway. Did anybody in South Africa or anywhere else make an attempt to clarify the position or refute the statistics? Did anyone try and do that? Or was it was it too late? Was the genie out the bottle and just flying across the world at this point? Well, this is the strangeness of it, is that South Africa just doesn't have that amount of voice in the international conversation. And you know, the South African government are, are kind of scratching their heads at this. I mean, the, the story sort of metastasizes. There becomes a thing about um, South African farmers then fleeing to Australia and being given political asylum by the the Australian government, which again um, points back to this Sadelander story. As, when as did a, that happen? That was about April time. And um, what was that true? Were people going to Australia for... for... Yes, there, well, there was um, the Australian Minister um, of the Interior, I think, um, was, was granting people asylum on, on that basis. Um, I think it, it was essentially a kind of a, a land grab, if you will, on the part of the Australians to get highly skilled South African farmers to kind of come into their um, interior and, and settle it um, under the, the auspices so of... The, 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 there were cases where this was happening, but is it is it accurate to say that that was amplified to suit an argument and to suit uh, saying, look, everyone is now fleeing and there's this terrible kind of white flight now from South Africa. I think the the white flight ties into 
another story. So statistically, white farmers are not at more risk than the general population. Um, and that is a very sad statistic because the general population are very much at risk. Um, the, the murder rate, I think, is about you know, 100 per 100,000. It's 100, one of the highest 000, in the world, isn't it? Which yeah. is, you know, puts you forth behind um, Honduras, El Salvador and um, whichever other middle American countries that are floating around there. Um, but beyond that, um, there is another thing happening, and that's where Sadelanders had a kind of a genius. They, they saw they could get, because we live in this sort of echo chamber world, something that was so shrill that it would shout over the tops of people's heads into the first world, um, in order to make a far more graded point about ongoing land reforms in South Africa, uh, where you have the Ramaphosa government trying to deal with something which effectively should have been settled uh, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and some of that may involve the expropriation without compensation of land from you know, overwhelmingly white farmers to settle a, a historical debt. There's a good way and there's a bad way of doing that. My read is that the Ramaphosa government will take the high road. There is, of course, Julius Malema hovering in the background and an election next year. And, um, you know, he is the we will drive the whites into the sea um, figure of the white South Africans nightmares. And um, people hear his sort of tub thumping rhetoric and they do get scared. And there is something quite legitimate in that fear, too. Well, it, I mean, it's it's just going kind to. Of, there's so much emotion around fear. Like, say, fear is such a strong emotion, and you know, sort of, it can be used in such a malign way. Um, Carl, what what's your take on on this story? It kind of slightly ties in with what you were talking about before, which is kind of new global power, and I suppose in terms of communication as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a an absolutely uh, brilliant story, and. And, and kind of shows very appositely um, the kind of struggle for truth in the digital age and, and quite what a big difference there is between information and, and truth now. Um, for me, it had really strong echoes of, of, of Russia, um, where, where we look at um, information warfare and we, we look at um, kind of Russia's um, attempts to try and use the internet as a way of extending its own political influence. And in exactly the same way, you often see these sometimes exaggerations, sometimes outright falsehoods, sometimes true stories, all mixing together in the mm. kind of strange backwaters of the kind of Russian blogosphere, um, perhaps picked up by a, a prominent conspiracy theorist or pro-Russian spokesman, and then going through exactly the same kind of journey, kind of leaping into first the mainstream press and then finally into the Kremlin and mm. and, and, and Putin's voice himself. So, um, I mean, kind of often we, we do look and we still try and drive this division between um, the kind of user-generated kind of world of social media and mainstream media. And we still look to editors and, and professional journalists as being um, ones which will, will make decisions for us um, and, and, and effectively about what actually is true and what isn't true. Um, we still try and cl try and cling to that distinction, I think, um, as as a way of trying to see us through this kind of huge kind of maelstrom of claims and counterclaims that we find ourselves being assailed with online. But but actually, um, those distinctions are increasingly breaking down, and we see time and time and time again, whether it's the alt right or whether it's uh, Russia or others. Um, we see claims that are surfacing and bubbling around, increasingly jumping into mainstream narratives and beginning to actually drive them as well. Well, I mean, that is absolutely correct. We we still, I think, want to believe that our 
whether it's our broadcasters or our newspapers, they're our trusted narrators. They are our sort of trusted gatekeepers about what is new, true and interesting and what's a credible, authoritative source. But you're right, that is breaking down so much. I mean, you mentioned Lauren Southern. I believe Katie Hopkins as well um, went to make a documentary about this. Now, you won't really see Katie Hopkins anymore on a mainstream media platform. I'm not quite sure, so sure about Lauren Southern, but their reach is huge because of social media and they themselves are platforms in their own in their own right now. That's right. You, you don't need a media org once you get to a certain size and, and, and people, you know, set themselves up. Um, the dilemma for them then becomes how do they fill that content pipeline when they are a one-man band? And I think, you know, um, Lauren Southern in particular was, was driven into this story. Um, you know, from what I heard from my conversation with Simon Ross, she turned it down the first time. She didn't feel there was enough in it. Um, and I'm speculating slightly here, but right. I, I kind of got the sense that she had done some research and realised, oh, this isn't quite right. Uh, but then the, the clamour had gotten so great within her sort of sphere of the internet that she'd almost been bounced into then um, going and, and making the film mm, to please the audience. And there See, is this sort of Faustian bargain with the audience. So you have a hyper-partisan crowd who demand a certain amount of content. They want it this type of way. And even she was... I mean, that, I find it fascinating that even Lauren Southern beginning was like, hmm, not quite sure about <laughs> this. I mean, that in itself was... Me. But I think you absolutely hit the, the nail on the head, um, Carl, with a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I did this... I mean, it was a very early discussion back in the day about sort of fake news, and somebody kind of said, look... The thing about all the fake news stuff, it's not necessarily one piece of news that is like a whopping great big lie. It's like a series of things which are like a gentle muddying of the water. And in aggregate, the more that is just gently, gently, gently distorted, then that's how it all migrates into something um, completely different. Just final um, question, Gavin. How does a country... I mean, you mentioned about how South Africa felt. I was just struck by what you said... I mean, we're talking about power. I mean, it sounds like the authorities felt powerless against this. You know, you have somebody who's make you know, somebody who, I mean, Lauren Southern herself, from what you've said at first, was like, I'm not quite sure about this. How does a country, how does a state defend itself against this type of misinformation? I don't know if it does. I, get, I think that just goes back to the central point we've already been making that, um, you know, the, the lie is, is nebulous and it, and it sort of gets out there and it's become, you know, it's taken a long time to develop its full mimetic power and kind of get into people's imaginations. Once, you know, it, it's like when someone is accused of rape in the public media and then someone says, oh, wait a minute, that was completely false, that person was lying. Um, that taint never goes away. Most people will just think, oh, the, 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 the rape guy. Um, you know, that's, that's the thing. I think that's slightly changing, but no, I see. I can't, like you know, some like you know, Cliff Richard. Everyone is now well, so everyone absolutely hates the BBC for what they did. To, but I mean, I see, I see the the the. I kind of see the sort of point. The, you're, you're that, that is the that is the pivotal problem at the heart of all of this is that it is simply easier to send a lie out than it is to yes. debunk it. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. It is a lie can travel further than a truth. Yes. Um, yeah. And this is the this is the whether it's um, whether 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 it's information warfare coming from states whether it's the alt-right kind of weaponising in a sense the internet and automate the political point. That is the problem everywhere now. Yeah. 
um, is that it is, it is so, so hard for us to actually, as a liberal democratic state, like know what to do about any of this. Yeah. Like offence is so much easier than defence and, and it's actually getting stronger as technology improves. That's what really terrifies me is that if you actually look at um, the use of automation, bots, bots, sock puppet, puppets, um, uh, um, spoofing accounts, all these different like little bag of tricks that, that the alt-right often use to try and make something appear more popular or to make it trend or, 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 or to engineer me. Um, the, the the kind of flow of kind of technological progress is in their direction at the moment. Like we we have we have no program of work, we have no strategy, we have no policy about how to actually defend any of this yet. Great, well, I'm feeling really cheered up by all that. <laughs> Thanks ever so much. <laughs> this has been quite a sobering edition of the Unheard podcast, but absolutely um, fascinating. Now we're now going to move on to um, heroes and villains of the week. Now, Gavin, I'm going to come to you first and. I'm not quite sure if this would be a hero or villain. I think it depends on what your perspective is on journalism. It, it, you could go ahead and explain who, who it is. Well, I'm against journalism overall, but uh, it is the Trump staffer who anonymously wrote in the New York Times about his experiences. His, uh, his or her experiences. Ah, in what, the... do you know? <laughs> what do you know? Is it Sarah Huckabee Sanders? I don't I know. I was so hoping um... it would be Sarah. I was like, come on, I would have so much respect. <laughs> she has such a tough job. <laughs> yes, um, but again, um, no one knows quite at what level level this person is. It is that screen, this could be a, some tea caddy somewhere. Um, and in terms of what they've they've said, they've said that the president is a, just a mouldering lunatic. Um, and I'm not sure if we didn't know that. The point is that there is sort of an internal resistance that is trying to uh, rein in his his worst tendencies. And apparently we've all been screened from those, uh, whether we know it or not. Which, if it was anyone but Trump, we would be saying was a, a, a an absolutely dangerous, anti-constitutional, uh, essentially kind of administrative coup, right? And this is the thing that's kind of incredible about American politics right now, is that I find myself cheering on someone who... Um, is essentially saying they're engaged in an anti-constitutional, anti-democratic attempt to try and remove the power of an elected leader. No, I, I, I feel exactly the same. I mean, A, the concept of somebody doing an anonymous um, op-ed, I sort of hate that idea because, I mean, that's just ridiculous. But then, and, and then I agree with you, having been a political advisor myself, you are there to serve. You, you as an unelected person have a huge amount of power, but you shouldn't corrupt that power. You are there to serve your, your leader. So on the one hand, um, sort of my, my kind of administrative, governmental hat on would say traitor. But then my common sense sort of this man is mad and dangerous for the world makes me think you're a great patriot for for trying to sort of um, restrain the excesses of this person. But I have to say, how scary would it be to be a staffer in the White House today? Oh, my God, I couldn't even possibly imagine Trump stalking the corridors. Do you think everyone will be hooked up with a lie detector test? I'm not sure, because like, people have very differing views of Trump. You know, there, there is this sort of people who say he's sort of petty and belligerent all the time to them. And then there is another crew of people who say that he is, you know, intensely loyal to his people and he has a great sense of humour, etc. So it's the 47 um, press secretaries that have worked for him yes. since he started. Well, I think you're sort of on one side of the curve <laughs> yeah. or the other, aren't you? And, and he treats you in a certain way until he doesn't. And it's, it's all sunshine or it's all shade. Yeah, well, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what the the fallout from that is. Um, we're then going to move on to villain of the week, and I have to say, with with a heavy heart, the 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 anti-Semitism row in the Labour Party just uh, continues to 
to rumble. I, I had hoped that the party might have been able to draw a line under it at the um, meeting of the NEC, which agreed to adopt the, the kind of international um, definitions. But alas, it's not to be. I just, to, to me, it looks like the, the row is now moving actually away from anti-Semitism and it's actually bleeding into a bigger, proper bona fide civil war in the Labour Party. Um, Corbyn didn't help himself by wanting to release a statement alongside the adoption of the guidelines, basically saying, I know we've worked really hard and taken lumps out of each other all summer, but I just want to say something to really annoy everybody again. And we've seen um, very provocative posters going up around London this morning basically saying um, Israel is is racist and I, I just wonder if the Labour Party can ever draw a line under this. Carl, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, one of the problems obviously is that Corbyn's great preoccupation during his time um, on the backbenches was foreign policy um, at, at a time really when I think like most people in the UK are, are, are worried about domestic issues. His own core base within the Labour Party simply won't allow him to do anything other than what he's doing. Um, I think it's poisonous. I think it's toxic. I think it's it's damaging to the Labour Party. And, and kind of uh, my, my thought really kind of overall is that kind of I think the difficulty is that the the the, the kind of Corbyn supporters um, that, that I've spoken to essentially cannot see this as as anything other than a kind of right wing Daily Mail driven Blairite. Manu- manu- Blairite plus press manufactured controversy. Um, which of course means that they end up denying that there is genuinely a problem within the Labour Party, which fuels the controversy even further. And I think they're kind of somewhat wrapped in this vicious cycle at the moment, is essentially seeing it as a plot to oust Corbyn rather than, um, uh, you know, um, actually a series of legitimate complaints and worries from people that that that, that Corbyn is a, as a real blind spot when it comes to um, when it comes to anti-Semitism. Gavin, do you think it matters that the broader public may not be as bothered? about it. Um, Knowledge about anti-Semitism is not massively high um, around the country. Labour seems to have gone up in the polls. Does that matter? It's been a very strange summer in that sense. And um, I guess we're talking about it here today. And I don't know if I've ever really consolidated my position on it. I'm always sort of extemporising here because it's everything that Carl said. It is both evidently quite real at some level but also I can't help but feel that the way this whole thing has just blown on and on and on and endlessly on seems to have some confected quality um there is yeah th- so do you think there is do you think there are people who are weaponizing it against Corbyn both in the party and in the media Absolutely. Um, and that d- is not to um, state that, that Corbyn doesn't have um, problems. Problems with leadership, I think, is, is a big thing. It's, it is a kind of a thick of it, yes, Minster kind of thing, where he just needed to have nailed this all together at well, some uh, point in May. You know? Vice famously um, made a film about Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn. This is quite early on in yes. his premiership, which... Um, was incredibly insightful but very damaging um, to him because it did get to your point. It showed that this was like sort of slightly thick of it at, at the heart of, of the leader of the opposition's office. Do you, do you guys still talk about that film? You've oh. got any chance of a re- Are you going to do a remake? <laughs> I think we've been serially uninvited, but it is a brilliant. There is a brilliant moment in there where one of his sort of spotty twenty-three-year-old uh, advisors uh, says, "Well, you know, I tell him to wear the the jacket and tie, and some days he listens to me, and some days he doesn't." <laughs> 
And I think that's kind of this, is that there is no central message here. Um, and I th it's hilarious when Corbyn comes out and appends his own statement to the end of his party statement, because that is, that is so sort of Labour caucus floor of the conference 1980s thing, where you end up with this sort of like 500 word <laughs> declaration on what should happen in the state of Palestine. And another thing, PPPPS, PPPPS, no. Well, um, I mean, I, 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 I can't see this being resolved for a long time. I think it's a stay of execution because I think um, there's going to be a new NEC that is reconvened uh, after at conference. And I think the, the goalposts will move again. So I think a lot of people in the party just want this to be over with so that we can go back to fighting about Brexit. What about um, the pro-Iran pro scandal? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But listen... Um, thank you so much, uh, Gavin and Carl, for coming in today. Really, really interesting, insightful and slightly terrifying discussions, but that's what we do at Unheard. Um, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Unheard weekly podcast with Aisha Hazarika. Please check out the Unheard uh, website for more uh, brilliant articles um, and podcasts as well. And uh, I will hope to have your company again next week. Mm -hmm.